Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. static and uh, we have a kind of interesting Supreme Court development and it is in the area of administrative law as well but it is on the emergency docket what critics call the shadow docket and um, I've talked about this before that uh, as soon as uh, our chattering classes don't like something they give it a bad name even if they've used it for hundreds of years before that So this emergency docket has been used by lawyers for a long time whenever something goes wrong below and they think that um, their client's interests are going to be irreparably harmed and they go to the Supreme Court and they say, you got to act quickly because this is really wrong and you've got to maintain the status quo until you get a chance to take a good look at it. And so this emergency docket, and that's what it is, it's been this way forever, um, is one whereby the briefing is short. The decisions are short. It's it's a up or down uh, vote on whether or not the regulation should be stayed or not, whether there'll be a, an injunction while the court dis- decides the matter. And uh, as the uh, folks who don't want uh, an injunction or stay always say, it's an extraordinary remedy. Yeah, it's extraordinary. We don't like to do it all the time because we want law to proceed majestically uh, onward in an orderly fashion. So you don't want the courts coming in and stopping everything all the time. So, uh, but there's, but so uh, a dispute has emerged. Um, As soon, you know, there was no complaints about the uh, emergency docket in the 70s when uh, Justice Brennan was uh, running the show. And so then suddenly the court changes and the same people who were mum about the emergency docket docket for 40 years suddenly say, oh, it's outrage. They've changed it. They're doing this. They're doing that. Because here's the problem. And this this is an accurate uh, problem, but it's sort of baked in the cake of the process. And that is the court, you make an emergency application, court looks at it, and then the court does something, usually without any opinion or a very brief opinion. They basically say, stop doing that, or you can keep doing that. That's pretty much all they say. They don't say why. They don't explain it. They don't. They don't uh, cite to the to the record or to the or 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 to a bunch of cases. They don't issue an opinion like uh, as as we're used to that comes out. You know, when they issue an opinion or all those ones that come out in June when they finish the term. So that is a criticism, and and I I have sympathy for that. But that's always been the case. But what we've been getting, um, I've discussed on this program before what I what I call Trump law, which was the uh, folks who didn't like anything the Trump administration was doing would bring this to the courts and get some rulings that we were always concerned were only going to apply to the Trump administration and to nobody else. And the problem with that is is that the law has to apply to everybody and has to be based on principles that are discernible by the populace or at least the lawyers. Um, and, and if it's just a matter of, well, Trump did this, 
so therefore we can stop it. Uh, that isn't a discernible principle that I can work with anyway, and I, I don't think a lot of people can. You want the principle to apply to everyone, or it's not law, it's something else. And so um, they would go to the Supreme Court to stop Trump administration's uh, activities. And they often did, because uh, one of the foibles of the Trump administration is they would not do what you're supposed to do on notice and comment. They wouldn't do certain things that you're expected to do when you change a regulation, because they were in a hurry. Um, and everyone's in a hurry. But look, if you want it to stick, you got to do it. You got to the court has been pretty clear on what you got to do to make something stick procedurally. So uh, as at a bare minimum, if it takes an extra three months, follow the procedure because then it'll stick and you won't have these procedural arguments, which really don't help anybody except people who want delay. Uh, you want to get to the merits. So I'm always for following the procedures uh, because the, the uh, law books groan under the uh, weight of opinion saying you didn't follow the right procedure. Um, in any event, so why do I bring this up? Why is this important? Well, um, so we've had complaints about stays and injunctions that have come out of the emergency docket. I refuse to call it the shadow docket except to criticize the term. Um, but what's happened here is there was a case, Louisiana and a bunch of other states at all versus American Rivers at all. And what happened was there was an environmental regulation on what the states had to do about uh, discharges into the waterways. Um, and this rule had stayed for 50 years and it was changed under the Trump administration. And that uh, rule was challenged and it was upheld. Um, now, then the Biden administration came in and has changed the rule. And uh, a bunch of states, uh, Louisiana amongst them, and, and as you should know, Louisiana is one of the major uh, industrial and oil producing states in the country. And uh, there is some concern that they are discharging effluents into the waterways and that that, that, that standard should be high. And they, uh, they feel that they were being treated, treated unfairly. So they attacked the change in the rule. And um, so... Uh, so I, I, I misspoke a little bit. So the district court, um, the district court in this case had remanded and vacated the rule that the Trump administration had put in. And uh, that's what's that's what happened. And um, so so that rule that Trump had put in changed it all. The Trump administration, uh, this district court had had said, no, that that's no good. So it went up the line and the court, without an opinion, um, what happened was Justice Kagan referred it to the court and, um, the Supreme Court stayed the disposition, uh, of the appeal in the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and the disposition of the petition for writ of certiorari if such writ is timely sought. Did the petition for a writ of certiorari be denied? This order shall terminate automatically. In the event the petition for writ of certiorari is granted, the order shall terminate upon sending down of the judgment of this court. So they've basically said, we're stopping what the district court did. We're putting back the Trump administration regulation and, and, and holding it. And it's not going to go back to what it's been for 50 years. And there was a dissent. And the dissent does not just say, 
a quick order. The dissent says why it's doing things. And it's Justice Kagan. Uh, and, and as frequent listeners of this show will know, she's my favorite of the progressive uh, uh, justices. And I always think she's clear and direct and, and uh, very rare that she she doesn't make some good points. And what happened here was, and, and what's getting all the news reports, is it also she also got Breyer and Sotomayor on her side. Okay, no real surprise there. Sometimes Breyer breaks on administrative questions, but okay, we, we got that. But the Chief Justice joined. So Roberts joined, and um, I have a far less jaundiced view of Justice Roberts than does my compatriot, Mr. Chenoweth, but um, he also joined. And I'll tell you why I think he joined, but let me let me tell you what happened here. Uh, what what the dissenters, and there were four of them, it was a five to four decision. That means Kavanaugh broke with Roberts. That means Barrett broke with Roberts and went with the majority to stay the administrative decision. All right. And um, what this what um, Justice Kagan harps upon. And I think it's it's something that all appellate courts look at all the time, um, and, and 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 which is important is the question of irreparable harm. That means for most injunctions, you cannot get an injunction. That means stopping the law, unless you are going to be harmed by the law in such a way that you cannot get repaired by money damages, and you know. We in the American Anglo-American system, we we apply money damages to many things. Like, look at a defamation claim. Your your good name has been um, ha- has been besmirched. It's been dragged through the mud. I mean, are you really made whole by an a, amount of money? There's no, but there's no way to take away the lie about you uh, at the time. So what happens is the person who lied has to pay you damages that the jury has decided. Uh, is uh, is recompense for that um, for that uh, uh, breach, uh, you know? But that is not irreparable harm because you can get money damages. That defamation is not uh, irreparable harm um, because you can get money damages. So irreparable harm are things like even though you get money damages if you lose an arm, if they're going to chop off your arm, you can get an injunction. That that even though the legal fiction that we give damages for that still irreparable. Um, if it's something that cannot be turned back, if it's a transaction that involves land, for instance, um, if it's something that's going to injure you uh, in in such a way that the court can't do it, if there's sovereign immunity, if the if the person who is doing the bad thing to you can't be sued for money damages. There's another way you get irreparable harm. But the reason I bring this up is because before granting injunctions, courts are always interested in this. And that's why often here at NCLA, we note that constitutional violations are always irreparable harm. So so if you have a constitutional violation, you are irreparably harmed because that is what? Uh, this is for Judge, soon to be Justice Jackson, I think. Um, and, and and that is um, you have inalienable rights. So when your inalienable right is injured, that's an irreparable harm, even if there are damages for it. So um, what happened? What did Kagan say? She says, wait a minute, you states. You've come here. You've gone up. And now the majority has stayed this has 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 stayed this decision, striking down this regulation that was brand new. 
We had the same regulation for 50 years. You weren't irreparably harmed for 50 years having to follow this regulation. So there's no irreparable harm. And it's just it's Robert says, yeah, she's right. You guys should be doing that. So I think you're going to see a lot more about the interest of the doctor. A way to signal the merit that should be doing that. We are back. Welcome back to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchioni, and I want to take a uh, frolic and a detour, as we sometimes say in the law. And this frolic and detour is into culture, because I was very, I am uh, uh, not a guy who watches the Oscars. I go to a lot of movies, but I do not uh, uh, spend a lot of time uh, with Hollywood award shows. But uh, I was just thrilled to death that CODA won the Best Picture Award at the Academy Awards. And CODA is a lovely little movie that you should all see. If you listen to this podcast, you should definitely see CODA. And uh, this movie was just uh, on the radar screen some time ago. Um, and it's about uh, some New England f- uh, fishermen. And they're a deaf family. And there's a father, a brother, a mother, and a daughter. And all of them are deaf except the daughter. And they make their living uh, fishing uh, out in uh, out of Gloucester. And um, they're, I can't, so you're saying, well, John, what does this have to do with administrative law? Why, why are we hearing about the movies? We can just go over to Entertainment Weekly or, uh, or TMZ if we wanted to hear about this. Well, I'm going to tell you why. We are talking about this because um, for many years at my previous employment and here, we have been fighting. And in our case, the case is is, um, Relentless Inc. uh, versus Commerce, because Commerce is the agency that oversees NOAA and the National Marine Fishery Service, which make these regulations. Uh, All of these family fishing boats, and there are, uh, they're all, they're all, small businesses um, have had a growing threat against them. And that threat has come without any law uh, by Congress to make it so. Uh, It has come from the administrative agencies. And here's what it is. Uh, As you know, there's a tragedy of the commons problems with our, uh, with fishing. So we have, uh, America owns all the fish in our national waters, right? And so just like I always say this, uh, you've probably heard me say this before, but if you've ever watched Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland uh, in Robin Hood, you know that Robin Hood gets in trouble because he's always killing the king's deer. All the deer are the king's deer, right? Well, the same thing happens in, in America in that all of the fish are the sovereign's fish and they have control over it. And so they get to say how many fish you get to take. And because uh, nobody owns the fish but the government, um, there's a problem that can be a problem of overfishing. So the Madison-Stevens Act was passed to um, 
take care of this problem and make sure that the, the federal government could could regulate the federal seas, basically. And um, so what happened was that uh, they made a law, and this is clear in the law, no one's challenged this, certainly we haven't challenged this, that the federal government is allowed to put on your fishing boat a uh, observer. And this observer gets to see how many fish you're taking and what you're doing uh, with the fish and how much bycatch. That's that's catch that you're not taking back to shore to sell to people and and Mrs. Paul's and all that. And you get you then say you then say what um what uh is the um what is the uh uh fish that you've thrown back basically that's what bycatch is i guess that's the best way to describe it and um so no one's challenged that they can always put them on the boat but these people were always paid by the government they weren't paid by anyone else but the government and um suddenly the uh, agencies decided that NOAA and national fisheries and everyone else decided that they were going to put these guys on your boat and they were also going to um, charge you for it. And they charge you $800 a day, 750 to $800 a day. Um, and, and so why would they do this? Uh, who knows? They said the, the, the Congress wasn't funding them at the level they wanted to be funded. Well, that's one way Congress has control over the agencies, right? They fund things at the level that they that they can um, fund them. So, uh, and, and if and, and if there's there's more funding needed, you go back to Congress. What you don't do is do what the agencies did, which says we are going to charge, we're going to make it a, a regulation that you have to enter into a agreement with these observers, and you've got to pay them all this money which is sometimes more than you make from the fish you catch that day. So you're, you're fishing for a loss. Um, and so I think that what's happened here is that, is that we have to, we have to make sure that the agencies don't get to just charge people um, without congressional authorization because otherwise then you can't control their budgets and they can destroy the industry. Well, CODA has these observers and it has scenes in it in which the family, uh, there are people down at the docks complaining to the guy who's the, on the council, the fishing council, uh, that they, they get charged all this money for these guys to be on their boats. And then one of the great cultural clashes is shown here because the people who are the um, who are the uh, observers, there's often a cultural class with the fishermen. They're they're like uh, young college folks who uh, environmentalists often and uh, not too well trained. Sometimes not too great on the water even. And these fishing guys are, are often people who've been doing it their whole lives. So uh, there's a great scene where uh, the woman comes on the boat and she's got her brand new uh, 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 seal skin uh, uh, water shedding uh, outfit and she's got to take the tags off and things like this. But she's the bad guy. It's like Ghostbusters when the EPA guy's the bad guy who gets lets all the uh, all the ghosts 
out onto New York City because uh, he's got to regulate and, and they're doing things that aren't within his, his uh, regulatory uh, approval. So the same thing happens in CODA. The, the young girl who can hear is off uh, doing a singing. Uh, she's, she, she's, she's basically taking the day off. And uh, the onboard observer says these deaf guys uh, aren't going to be able to hear. And so she calls up the Coast Guard. And when the Coast Guard comes and they and they uh, blast their horns at these guys, they don't hear it. And then they say that's a violation and they pull it over and they don't let them fish anymore. And their livelihood is taken away. And um, all of this uh, was was done in a day. And these people's lives were livelihoods were taken away in one day. And so. You don't see this in the movies too often. Um, so Coda is great for other reasons. All the acting, Mary Maitland is in it. She's the probably the most famous, but uh, the the fellow who plays her husband won an Oscar as well. He's another deaf actor, and uh, they all do a great job. I mean, this is not uh, sometimes you know that there's this idea that um, they if you have people with disabilities they they hype it up or they, or they over, uh, you know, they make it mawkish. This is not mawkish. This is a great show. These are, they, these are just, uh, people who happen to be deaf. They're not standing in for anything. And, um, and, 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 uh, it's a, it's a really, really good movie. Um, and it it doesn't have any, uh, you know, super powered people in it. So if you need that, don't go see it. But what it does have is a, a really excellent, true to life, example of how the regulatory state without any congressional um, warrant goes off and, and ruins your livelihood. And uh, they, they could have done other things, right? If this it, police and, and even prosecutors sometimes say, well, why don't you plead? Why don't you do this or that or the other thing? They don't just stop you from working oftentimes. Um, but the administrative state, she had her job to do and she decided to ruin these people's lives rather than saying, hey, can you guys do anything so that you hear this or, or not? And um, and that they were paying her salary. They were, they were, that she was on that boat was making it unprofitable um, for them to fish. And she's then ruining their livelihood. And I don't think there's a better example of how the administrative state uh, really crushes people. And what they don't show in the movie, which is what our case is about, is that Congress didn't do this. Congress said you could put these people on, but it didn't say you could charge small businesses this. And Congress has always been very, very, very uh, concerned about who charges what and how they get money, right? The power to tax, that's Congress's power. The power to charge for government services, you have to it's it's tightly bound by a lot of different statutes. Like the money's always got to go back to the public fisc. And uh, so Congress can be controlled. You can't just use it for your agency purposes. Um, the other thing is that they sometimes allow you to charge for your costs, right? So when, when, when we file cases or a lawyer files cases, you have to, you file, uh, you're charged for what it costs the government to, process it and put it together and all this. And those are court costs. And they're, they've been around for hundreds of years. And we all know what those are. But again, they're authorized by statute. And then they're, they're well known and they're published what they are. It's not a matter of you don't know what it's going to be. So uh, Coda, the, the young woman who's the heroine of it, is just a wonderful young actress. 
uh, there's not a there's not a a, a bad uh, performance in the whole thing, in my view, um, and and it, it it really brings this home. Now, um, I I will say this: you'll look at it and you'll say, "Oh, that wasn't about administrative law," and I will admit they do not go into administrative law, but it is a problem that uh, I've litigated about for a long time. And my friend and colleague, Eric Bolander, had a wonderful um, article about this for, for his case in the Wall Street Journal, April 3rd, 2022. If you get the Wall Street Journal, or you can go on. It says, CODA is a drama about excessive regulation. Now, that is probably over-egging the pudding, but it does make an important point. And so go see CODA. I don't think I'll do any other movie reviews, but oh, who knows? It could be a, it could be a surprise. Thank you very much. And for John McHale signing off, and we'll all see you next time.